This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. We've got an unusual case for you tonight, one that, at its very core, asks this question. Should a father be sentenced to death for not doing enough to save his children from a house fire. No doubt, most parents wouldn't hesitate to do all they could to save their child's life. But a decade ago, a Highland County jury had to consider this as a legal matter. If the father is drunk and standing dazed in his backyard in nothing but his underwear, if he's unresponsive to questions as neighbors try to ascertain where the children are, if he stands by numbly watching as others incur injuries trying to rescue his two little boys who are screaming inside, does this seemingly inexplicable behavior equate to capital murder? I'll tell you what the jury decided, but first, the story. March the 7th, 2010, in Greenfield, which straddles Highland and Ross counties, some 50 miles south of Columbus. Greenfield used to be a city, but by 2010, the population had declined to about 4,600, which, by Ohio law, automatically made it a village. And in this village, on Lafayette Street, was a single-story duplex where 42-year-old Wesley Coonrod lived with his two sons. Stephen was three years old. Thomas was going to turn four in just another week. They had moved into the Lafayette house just two weeks earlier. The boys had a mom, but she had fallen on hard times and gave custody to Wesley, a man who had never finished high school, appeared to have a drinking problem, and relied heavily on family to help care for his sons. The mom lived in Portsmouth with three other children, half-siblings to Stephen and Thomas. 
I'd like to tell you more about Stephen and Thomas, but they were still too young to develop the kind of personality traits that would help me bring them back to life for you. Their grandmother, Bonnie Elliott, described them as beautiful, sweet, and always smiling. Now, the night of March 7th, at about 12.30 a.m., as Saturday night rolled over into early Sunday morning, a neighbor of the Coonrods, Jason Jenkins, noticed smoke coming from their unit. He first ran to the side of the duplex that wasn't on fire and alerted those tenants to get to safety, then turned to the side, being licked by flames. Jenkins tried the front door. It was locked. He ran to the back, and there he saw his new neighbor, Wesley Coonrod, standing in his underwear, smelling of alcohol and staring at the house. Jenkins knew Coonrod had two boys and asked him where his kids were. Coonrod mumbled that he didn't know, and he seemed somewhat disinterested. The neighbor tried the back door. It was also locked. He kicked at it seven or eight times. It finally broke from its frame, but a wall of smoke stopped him from going inside. Another neighbor, Kelly Stockton, joined him. They went to a bedroom window and broke it. Jenkins dove inside, cutting himself on the glass. He could hear the boys crying, but he couldn't tell where from. And by now, the smoke inside was so thick, he couldn't take a single breath. He had no choice but to retreat. He was later treated for cuts and smoke inhalation. Firefighters arrived. They kept asking Coonrod where his children could be located in the house. He didn't answer them. Repeatedly, they asked, but he was unresponsive. Finally, as soon as they could enter the house, a firefighter opened a closet door in the children's bedroom and found little Thomas and Stephen inside. Both had suffered burns and smoke inhalation. As the children were carried to the ambulance, Coonrod stayed rooted to a spot. Someone had to prompt him to go to his children and accompany them to the hospital. The children did not survive their injuries and died soon after arriving at the hospital. Police and firefighters said they were stunned at the inaction of this man. His lack of emotion and lack of concern really stood out because the very next day, some of the first responders themselves had to receive counseling, so affected were they by the deaths of Stephen and Thomas. Police Chief Tim Hester said the whole affair was horrific and that Coonrod was culpable because, quote, he was extremely intoxicated and in no condition to care for those children. And so, the day after the fire, Coonrod was arrested on two counts of child endangerment. The judge set the bail at $1 million. The following day, Coonrod was allowed out of jail briefly and under an armed guard so he could make funeral arrangements for his boys. One month after the tragic fire, Highland County Prosecutor Jim Grandy said the charge of child endangerment wasn't enough. He theorized that since Coonrod seemed so unfazed by the events of that night, he must have wanted his children dead, maybe even set the fire himself. 
He asked a grand jury to return indictments for aggravated murder and aggravated arson. And after they did, Grandy announced he was going to seek the death penalty. Grandy told reporters the case had touched him deeply. had been called to the scene later that Sunday morning when he was on his way to church. And the deaths of the boys made him think of his own grandchildren, just a little older than Thomas and Stephen. Three fire investigations were conducted. None of the three could produce the remains of an accelerant. Investigators said it wasn't unusual for a fire to consume all trace evidence. But two of the investigations concluded that an accelerant must have been used and noted what appeared to be a poor pattern that extended from the hallway to the front door where a lighter was found on the floor. It was suggested that lighter fluid left behind by a previous tenant had been employed. The third test, done at the request of Coonrod's defense attorney, also found no remains of an accelerant and suggested that what some thought was a poor pattern was really highly flammable carpet padding. Coonrod's trial was set for October of 2010. The case received a whole lot of media attention in the rural county, so his defense asked it be moved to another county, fearing it would be difficult to find a jury without a predetermined opinion. But the judge denied a change of venue. A jury was seated, and in an unusual move, six alternates were chosen instead of the usual two. The trial started with the jury taking a tour of the Greenfield duplex where little Thomas and Stephen lost their lives, and then opening arguments. The prosecutor laid out his circumstantial case, the suspicious fire investigation, Coonrod's behavior, even how at one point, when someone was asking him where his children were, he asked for a cigarette. Coonrod's defense attorney, William Mooney, told the jury it wasn't fair to judge how someone might respond in a crisis, that the father was in shock. Later, the defense would call up Coonrod's eye doctor to talk about how he had a degenerative eye disease that gave him gun barrel vision. It was a disability similar to night vision, he said, that would have made it near impossible for him to navigate in the darkness. It would have stopped him from being able to find his children in the house and maybe even contributed to Coonrod's confused state outside. Also, during the trial, jurors learned that this wasn't the first fire the family had faced. As a matter of fact, just one month earlier, in February, Coonrod and his two boys were left homeless after a fire in a home they were renting on Milburn Street. In that case, nobody could agree on the fire's origins. The marshal officially ruled it undetermined. The insurance investigator called it careless smoking. But the investigation also determined that the fire had started in a toy box. Since family members had seen Thomas playing with his dad's lighter before, Coonrod was told to teach his children fire safety. After that fire, Three-year-old Stephen stayed with one relative, and little Thomas and his dad stayed with another family member until they got the duplex on Lafayette and were reunited.
Coonrod's attorney got the father to admit he never followed through with teaching his children about fire safety, and therefore it was completely possible that Thomas had been playing with the lighter again. But the prosecution was able to bring out strange things that Coonrod couldn't explain. For instance, when Coonrod took the stand, he said he first tried to get to his children's room, but when the fire blocked him, he crawled out a bedroom window. Then he couldn't get back in because the doors were locked. Neighbors, however, testified that the windows were all closed and locked. That's why they had to break the glass and get cut in the process. More likely, the prosecution said, Coonrod set the fire, exited the front door, dropping his lighter as he was locking the door behind him, then walked to the backyard. Then he purposefully slowed down efforts to get to the boys by refusing to answer questions of neighbors and firefighters. Coonrod's siblings testified on his behalf, saying the behavior that first responders had testified to at the scene was not the behavior they saw at the hospital. They said they watched Coonrod sobbing and picking Tommy up from his hospital bed and holding him while crying, Please, Tommy, wake up. The trial lasted two days, after which the jury went into deliberations, and they brought their pajamas with them. The judge ordered them to be sequestered until their work was done. Now, there was no doubt the prosecution's case was entirely circumstantial. The prosecutor acknowledged it. But the challenge of trying to read intent into someone's behavior based on how you think they should react really bogged down the jury as Thursday went into Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday. After four days, the jury had a problem. They sent word to the judge that one juror was showing, quote, bias, sympathy, and prejudice toward the defendant. And they weren't sure what to do next. The judge reminded them that there were seven different counts in this case, from the capital murder charge to the lesser charge of child endangering. And if they thought they could agree on any of them, they should focus on the counts that might bring a verdict. That advice did the trick. On the fifth day, the jury came back. They found Coonrod guilty of two counts of child endangerment. The jury was deadlocked on the aggravated murder and aggravated arson charges that could have sent Coonrod to death row. And since they didn't return any verdict on those, legally those charges could be brought again. And they were. Before the month was out, Prosecutor Jim Grandy filed a motion to take Coonrod back to trial on the more severe charges. But this time, Grandy took the death penalty off the table. The judge announced he would withhold sentencing on the first trial until the second trial was completed. He also agreed to a change of venue. For the second trial, Coonrod's fate would be decided by a jury in Pickaway County's capital of Circleville. The trial began in January of 2011. As in the first trial, Coonrod took the stand in his own defense. 
His testimony was so punctuated by sobs as the defendant described trying to reach his boys and being turned away by a wall of fire, it moved at least one male juror to tears. I couldn't get back in there to get my kids, Coonrod said. I couldn't get in there to get my sons. That's something I'll have to live with the rest of my life. Coonrod admitted to having drank six beers that evening, but denied that it had made him drunk. And once again, he explained his unresponsive behavior to a feeling that he was living through a nightmare. The prosecutor laid out his theory again and brought in the fire inspectors and the first responders so disturbed by Coonrod's behavior that night. The case went to the jury, and again, jury drama ensued. This time, the judge was told that juror number five had mentioned having a similar situation in her family, a fire involving children, and that the other jurors believed her emotional involvement was going to make it difficult to come to a decision. The judge ruled that the juror should have mentioned that experience prior to being seated on the jury. During the voir dire phase, when jurors are asked questions to make sure they don't have biases that will make it hard for them to be objective. Juror number five was dismissed, and the first alternate took her place. That very afternoon, the jury came back united. They found Coonrod guilty of involuntary manslaughter and not guilty of murder and arson. Since the jury ruled on those more serious charges, it closed the door on a third trial. The announcement was met with a lot of emotion in the courtroom. Even after jurors were dismissed, several lingered for the sentencing portion of the hearing, many of them in tears and even comforting each other with hugs. Also crying in that courtroom was Felicia Elliott, Coonrod's ex-wife, and the mother of the boys who had given him custody. The mother asked a representative to read a statement she had written. Here's a quote. Today and for the rest of my life, I am mourning the loss of my two precious boys. There is not a day that goes by that I do not visualize them laughing and playing together. Because of your irresponsibility, selfishness, and your lack of parental guidance, I will never be able to hold them, hug them, kiss them goodnight, or watch them grow into men. The mother then asked the judge to give Coonrod the maximum sentence, saying, We have to live every day of our lives without seeing their precious faces or hearing their little voices. He should have to sit in prison and fight for his life as my babies fought for theirs on that early morning of March seventh, two 2010. Prosecutor Grandy asked for the same, saying Thomas and Stephen, quote, lost their lives because of his inaction and his refusal to take any responsibility. Coonrod addressed the court, crying, saying that he could not believe the outcome of the verdicts. I didn't do nothing to harm my kids, he said. I would never do nothing to harm my kids. How am I guilty of anything? I'm just begging at the mercy of the court. I'm speechless. He went on to say, My ex-wife, she knows good and well that them kids was my life. There wasn't nothing in this world I wouldn't do to protect them. 
But on that night, I couldn't protect him good enough. I couldn't save my sons. Judge Rocky Koss wasn't buying it. The jury may have returned guilty verdicts on only the lesser charges, but he would make the most of it. He sentenced Coonrod to the maximum, 10 years for each boy, for a total of 20 years in prison. Koss told the father that most parents would die for their children, and the fact that Coonrod's injuries amounted to a burn on one hand meant he hadn't been willing. Quote, not only did you not die trying to save your children, you didn't even try, Koss said. It appears to the court you did nothing. You failed to protect your children. You say your children were your life. There was also a lot of beer in your life. Koss said he was also swayed by what he saw as Coonrod's refusal to take any responsibility at all. He said, most parents, including myself, when children are harmed, even if it was an accident, they blame themselves for not having foreseen that there was a risk or that they didn't do a good enough job to educate them or to watch them. I hear nothing from you other than the fact of how hard this has been on you. I have heard nothing in any of the testimony you have given in either trial about the children's suffering. This case has been all about you and how you have suffered because your children died. I have heard nothing about your children screaming during that fire. Afterward, Prosecutor Grandy said Coonrod was lucky. He said he talked to the jury and understood their perspective. It didn't change his own contention that Coonrod's behavior suggested he wanted his children to die. But, he said, it's a verdict we can accept. From day one, our focus on this case has been to do justice for Thomas and Stephen. I believe that has been accomplished. That's it for a 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here next week for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight cisgender white men and the victims of true crime are not a monolith either she's wendy and i'm beth and together we host fruit loop serial killers of color a true crime podcast Together, we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.